Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans, welcoming you back to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you The Church of St. Thomas Paine, A Religious History of American Secularism by Dr. Lee Eric Schmidt. In this book, Schmidt tells a surprising story of how free-thinking liberals in 19th century America promoted a secular religion of humanity centered on the deistic revolutionary Thomas Paine, and how their descendants eventually became embroiled in the culture wars of the late 20th century. After Paine's remains were stolen from his grave in New York and shipped to England in 1819, the reverence of his American disciples took a material turn in a long search for his relics. Paine's birthday was always a red-letter day for these believers in democratic cosmopolitanism and philanthropic benevolence, but they expanded their program to include a broader array of rites and ceremonies, particularly funerals, free of Christian supervision. They also worked to establish their own churches and congregations in which to practice their religion of secularism. All of these activities raised serious questions about the very definition of religion and whether it included non-theistic fellowships and humanistic associations, a dispute that erupted again in the second half of the 20th century. As right-wing Christians came to see secular humanism as the most dangerous religion imaginable, small communities of religious humanists, the heirs of Paine's followers, were swept up in new battles about religion's public contours and secularism's moral perils. Schmidt's book paints an engrossing account of an important but little-known chapter in American history and reveals why the lines between religion and secularism are often much blurrier than we imagine. Dr. Lee Eric Schmidt is the Edward C. Mallinckrodt Distinguished University Professor in the Humanities at Western excuse me, Washington University in St. Louis, and joined the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics in 2011. He has appeared on NPR programs and other radio shows to discuss his many books, including this show in 2018, to tell us about his book, Village Atheists. He's also contributed to such notable media outlets before, such as The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, London Times, Boston Globe, and another a number of other titles you would no doubt recognize. He joins me today to talk about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to work in your field. Well, let's see. I um, came to the field, I guess, broadly, I had a a lot of interest in in religion growing up. Um, I grew up in an ecumenical Protestant home where um, any number of social justice issues were of pressing concern. And then there were other religious movements uh, represented in the, in the, in the family, new thought and positive thinking. And, and uh, so I, I, uh, I, I think I had a strong interest in it going into college already. And then it was in college that I actually took relevant history courses and, and religious studies courses, particularly with one scholar, a historian named Edmund Gausted, and I took probably way too many classes with one faculty person. But it was uh, those classes that really then launched me into becoming a historian with a 
a specialization in um, in American religious history. Um, he had done a lot a lot of work on on uh, the Great Awakening and uh, the rise of evangelicalism, but also on on the Enlightenment. Um, and so, a lot of the topics that were of central interest to him became of um, central interest to me in, in, in my work. And then I went off to graduate school and, and developed, um, developed those interests further and expanded them in different ways. Okay, great. So next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. Um, sure. So I, um, I had worked in this uh, previous book, Village Atheists, on the um, figures who were most adamantly opposed to uh, to Christianity and to religion in general. They really saw themselves as the the ones who were going to you know crush the infamy. And uh, so I was interested in this project to look at the people who wanted to continue to have some sort of positive relationship with religion as an idea, as a construct that, that even as they become quite secular in their outlook or avowedly secular in their outlook, they think that religion, um, you know, as one says, is too, too good a word to lose. And they continue to engage it and try to think about what a secular religion might look like or what, um, what a humanistic religion might look like. So I wanted to kind of move into that in-between space that was there, but it was easy to see how it would get crowded out in the kind of very sharp opposition between Christians and atheists or between you know, evangelicals and and infidels. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's how I, I did it. I moved into that world. Okay, yeah. So let's start there. Um, you start by explaining how in the 1800s, the notion of secularism as a religious sect, and even with a potential title like the religion of humanity, these were hotly debated items among secularists themselves as they tried to work out their goals and vision for a secular post-religious country. So this is an area of American history we don't often hear about. What's going on then? Right. Well, the, I think arguably the 19th century is the, the 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 most important period for thinking about the formation of secularism. I mean, this is the the period in which secularism as an idea uh, takes shape. It's coined by this British uh, free thinker George Jacob Holyoke, and um, so if we want to think about you know, where does secularism come from? Certainly any organized version of, of secularism. You want to pay uh, attention to the, to the 19th century. I mean, one of the things that's going on um, to figures like Holyoke um, or Robert Ingersoll who are, who are looking, you know, kind of to find some sort of middle space between Christianity and um Atheism I means they really want to get away from that the sharpness of the opposition. I mean, a kind of sharp theist-atheist divide, and think about, um, you know, sort of a practical middle ground. What 
what might be possible if if the theist and the atheist stopped uh, focusing so much of their energy on metaphysical questions, on theological questions, and really concentrated on the kind of this worldly ethical program? What might be able to be accomplished if you could get out of that kind of basic polemical structure? So, I mean, that's that. I mean, that's part of what's going on here, and why say so? Why secularism, you know, be, becomes a, a term in the period is they're they're looking for that way of um, breaking out of that opposition. They're also looking for a way just to get themselves heard. I mean, especially Holyoke and some of the others is like we can't. You know, we can't get ourselves heard here if we're just constantly being bombarded with these labels of atheist and infidel. Any constructive program we might have to offer is is just getting um, lost in the insult uh, of those kinds of terms. So let's come up with another way of describing ourselves. Um, let's think of ourselves as secularists and put the world, put the emphasis on a this worldly um, ethical program. So... So those, I mean, those are some of the issues that are going on. Of course, there's just a bigger swirl of issues in the 19th century um, as, you know, between a kind of um, Christianity as this revealed religion, this growing sense that there's some sort of um, deep conflict between Christianity and science. So that battle is, is, is coming into sharper and sharper focus in the final decades of the 19th century. I mean, there are more and more free thinkers uh, – advancing this notion of a kind of warfare view between Christianity and, uh, and science. So, so that battle's going on and opening up, um, um, much um, more vigorous attacks um, from the free thinkers on Christianity too. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of reason to look at the 19th century as a, as a place for thinking about how secularism takes shape. In fact, you suggest that some of the central questions of that period, such as how a religion is defined, how a government should protect minority sects, this kind of thing, they actually uh, set the stage for the way these issues continue to be negotiated today. You mentioned some of the Supreme Court cases in the 1960s about Bible classes or Bible Bible classes and prayer in school, for example. So do you think that the way these debates are framed today come directly from the advocacy of secularists in the 1800s? I I mean, there's certainly a lot of continuities. I mean, one of the things that happens is that um, the investment on the part of certain secularists in thinking about secularism as a religion does have consequences down the road. And then, you know, and then in the 20th century too, with the rise of these new humanists, especially in the 1920s and 1930s, and they're putting an emphasis on the religiousness of their humanism. That move on their part, that there really is a kind of religious heft to secularism, a religious heft to humanism, that works well in the middle decades of the 20th century in the United States, if you're fighting these battles out in the courts, is, courts around, say, issues of tax exemption, that, hey, we're a religion, we deserve the same rights of, of any other religious group when it comes to tax exemption. If we're hold, holding these services in our buildings, our buildings, you know, should should have the same exemptions that the Lutherans have or the Methodists have. So, so 
being able to accent the religiousness of humanism or the religiousness of ethical culture works well in those kinds of cases. Tends to work well um, too in cases around conscientious objection. Or, you know, it's the same kind of leverage one can get in cases around chaplaincies. Should humanist chaplains be recognized in the military um, or not? Well, if, you know, if you're emphasizing the religiousness of your program, then why wouldn't humanist chaplains qualify, right, alongside uh, Catholics or any variety of Protestants? The problem arises is that once you push that kind of claim and you, be, you, you get this counter uh, attack um, among conservatives, okay, secularism is a religion. Now when you take prayer and Bible, Bible reading out of the public schools, the argument is now you've established your religion. You may have gotten rid of Christianity. You've taken these Protestant-derived devotional practices out of the public schools, but now – you know, you've established your own religion in its place because you're now you're, you're saying it's a religion and, and now, you know, this is the in effect what's being. So that's the argument that's made. Um, and that become that a lot of leverage is gained there. So so that makes people re- think again about, well, now are we religion or not? So that's where the you know, the the you begin to get more sustained reflection on the part of secularists and humanists about about claiming a religious identity and, and that shifts in um, from the mid 60s into the 1980s um, but again that debate from the 19th century hey is secularism a religion or not it does provide a groundwork for how this plays out you know in the middle decades in, of the 20th century and into the into the 1980s and 1990s So let's turn our attention to the eponymous Thomas Paine. What did he write and what did people make of him? For my purposes, the the key text is uh, The Age of Reason, which he uh, authors in the mid-1790s. This is his attack on, on Christianity, especially the Bible, on the authority of the Bible, um, on, um, you know, he goes through the he goes through the Bible stories, and he you know he says he takes an axe to them; they'll never be able to flourish again. He just levels the levels the sense that these these stories, these texts, have um, any revelatory uh, significance, and are and are also um, fraught with inconsistencies. So that's the key text for free thinkers in their defining themselves against Christianity. And that's also the key text that Christians take for deciding that Thomas Paine is a terrible founding father and should be forgotten, you know, that, that he can't be saved. He might've done all these good things for the revolutionary cause, um, pamphleteering, common sense, tr- stealing patriot resolve, um, with the crisis. He might've had a grand sense of a democratic revolution, um, but for all the good he did as a, as a patriot and as a revolutionary, um, that just can't make up for the fact that he was such a sharp critic of Christianity and such a sharp critic of the churches. So that age of reason text 
is the one that flips everything. It makes the free thinkers tend to align with him as the kind of their prophet, and it makes Christians sure that they want to do everything to uh, defame him to, and keep him from being recognized as a as a founding father, as a worthy founding father. So this brings us to a very bizarre sequence of events. It starts with one man's good intentions to restore respect to Payne's remains, but this doesn't have the outcome he had hoped. These poor bones, in fact, have a very long journey. So tell us about that. Right. Yeah, this is uh, this is a very unusual story, um, at least for free thinkers. It certainly comes off as quite bizarre. So William Cobbett is a... British former critic of Paine who has become an ardent admirer of Paine. Paine dies um, in 1809 and is buried on his farm in uh, New Rochelle, New York. Um, a decade later, Cobbett shows up with, with a fellow admirer of Paine and, and has decided that Americans um, you know, have paid Paine no adequate tribute um, because of the his infamy as a critic of Christianity, um, his, his reputation has, has fallen um, to, um, to disastrous lows and he deserves to be returned to the motherland. His remains should be returned to the motherland. Will there be uh, an appropriate funeral, an appropriate burial, and a grand monument will be built? So he steals the remains in the dead of night, somehow gets them on a ship in New York, and, and they eventually make their way back to England, um, where most of the things he dreamed of doing for Payne's memory just don't work out. I mean, most people are scandalized that he's done it. Um, mo- much of the British public feels about Payne's religious legacy the way American Christians feel about Payne's religious legacy, which is they just don't want this blasphemer's remains around, and they see no reason why you would pay honor and to him, um, plus he's seen as a dangerous revolutionary incendiary and and Cobbett's political designs, um, you know, don't elicit much sympathy from from the from from more conservative wings. So, so that the project, this kind of grand memorializing project that Cobbett, Cobbett dreams up, really doesn't work out. He's mostly, you know, humiliated. And he can't pull this off at all. So the bones are stored away. Nobody's even really quite sure what he does. I mean, they're already within a few years, different stories about where the bones have gone. There's some agreement that Cobbett takes him to his to a farm in Surrey. Then when he dies in 1835, um, they go to his eldest son briefly. and But then when... He has to sell off the father's estate to pay off debts. The bones go to someone else. Eventually, they go to this tailor named Benjamin Tilly, who thinks he's going to finally do all this memorializing work that Cobbett said he was going to do. But Tilly's no better at doing it than than Cobbett. No more successful. And so, by the by, eighteen fifty, nobody really knows where the bones are. I mean, nobody can know for sure. And there's stories that, you know, people have been pilfering them and dividing them up. And so it just becomes this mystery. And then 
you know, meanwhile, back in the United States, there are free thinkers are developing a more and more robust devotion to Paine's memory. And they have this dishonored grave, this empty tomb in New Rochelle, and they think one of the things that should be done is they need to get the bones back. They need to get the remains back to the United States. So it becomes this quest, this really largely unrequited quest to get the bones back um, to the United States because no one really finally knows where the bones are. Um, Though there are lots of stories. People claim to have them, then you can't find them, or then you just miss them. They were, you know, anyway, it's it's just goes on for decades. Um, eventually this one particularly dedicated painite, the, the the followers of pain, or are sometimes known as painites, which gives you some sense of their sectarian identity. Um, Moncure Daniel Conway, who's this American Unitarian term free thinker who ends up at a arch liberal kind of ethical culture type church in uh, London. And he becomes dedicated to this cause um, of some getting the bones back and getting them back to the United States and dedicating to collecting anything he can of, of pain, all the relics of pain he can identify. And um, so eventually he does, he, he stages a big, pain exhibition in London in 1895. And as part of that exhibition, so he claims or so he believes, he has identified a portion of Payne's brain and some locks of his hair, along with various other less fleshy relics like a desk and, you know, first editions of Payne's works and things like that. So, so anyway, so he has that and eventually he does get, he gets these things, they back to the United States where they are celebrated and solemnized and the piece of brain in 1905 and the hair gets back. Oh, in like 1914. So they have this sense that, well, this is as good as we can do. We've never really delivered on this. We've never really reclaimed his remains in the way we hope to reclaim them. Um, but nonetheless, we've done this. Um, and there's a way in which there becomes a mythology around the missing bones. They, they, they decide that the very fact that the tomb remains empty is, you know, a sign of, of Payne's diffused spirit, the, his, the diffused influence of his democratic politics, the diffused influence of his free-thinking iconoclasm. And, and so they, they, they um, you know, attach symbolic weight to... Um, to the missing bones in that kind of way. But the bigger question it has to do in this incredibly elaborate story is what are free thinkers doing with this investment in, in materiality? Is this put them within a religious frame? Is this a kind of religious materiality? After all, they've defined themselves against um, Christian notions of relics. I mean, they're, they're, you know, Protestants, of course, have defined themselves against Catholic relics, but the freethinkers have really defined themselves against relics, in, you know, r- religious relics across the board. I mean, not just what Catholics do, but what Protestants do. Protestants have are seen as having their own relics, their devotion to the Bible, or the, or the, the symbol of the cross. And there's a and there's a kind of way in which these Enlightenment figures really think that the any fetishization of an object 
is a, is a, is a superstition. It's something that they're working to abolish from their lives and from the lives of other people. And so, you know, what's happening? And then, and that's the kind of question I, I want to open up by exploring the story and exploring the fascination and exploring the language they use to describe their, their reverence for these relics of their longing to, to reclaim the relics. And, um, you know, some very, um, you know, some very uh, ambivalent um, senses of, of this materiality emerge from that. I mean, there's a kind of like a den- continually denial that they could actually accord any religious significance to these relics with, on the other hand, very clear affirmations that there's something very important about these remains and that they have a kind of luminous quality, um, a mystif, they easily start using, um, mystifying language to discuss the, you know, pain's power. Um, so, so it's just that it's, it's, it's an opportunity. All of the story becomes an opportunity for thinking about the religiousness of secularism, for thinking about the dance with religious materiality, this particular group of free thinkers are in. Um, so, so that's, that's, I, I find the story I and mean, I think the story is fascinating in and of itself, but I, what makes it especially fascinating is this, that, that question about the ambiguousness of free thinking religiosity, the devotion to pain. How are we to describe this devotion to pain? Why? You know, and I, you know, it's, and they know it's very, very confusing. Um, that's one of the things, I mean, they, they are, they're bewildered by their devotion oftentimes, and they will tend to, uh, approach it very warily. Then they'll, they'll express it and then they'll deny it. And there's, um, you know, so you get this kind of the sense of the awkwardness with which free thinkers see their reverence in religious terms and how they know it's awkward, but nonetheless, they're kind of absorbed in it. I mean, I, I found, I mean, this one story that I, I just love because it's just full of comp- complication and bewildering confusion is this one free thinker, very prominent um, Thaddeus B. Wakeman, who's prominent um, civil liberties lawyer in the period, free speech activist, Involved in all the secularist causes, and he's a you know just a very dedicated painite, and he he's giving a you know a speech at one of these pain events, usually timed to Payne's birthday. That's a big celebration always, and he he's trying to figure out well what you know how do I memorialize pain? I mean we've done this every year. We always memorialize pain. What should I talk about? And he decides to talk about pain as an angel. Okay fine. And he explains this in what ways he thinks of pain as an angel. But what's the, one of the more astonishing things in this story is he, he confesses and as part of the storytelling that he's he has a portrait of pain which he has decorated with the wings of a bird in, that he has in his parlor. So he's got this portrait, central portrait but he's he has attached the wings of a bird to the portrait of pain to make pain look like an angel. So then you're, you're, you know, you're just left with all of these, these um, strange paradoxes um, of someone who is a committed anti-fetishist, 
who has nonetheless fetishized this image of pain in, in, in you know, very transparent ways. And so, so that's what, that's what I, I play around with in that chapter and in the kind of circling around these stories. Um, it's the ways in which these secularists become worshipers at a shrine, really, um, or but also ones that the very complicated ones, ones that are always kind of putting quotation marks around their worship and quotation marks around their devotion. So it's, but it's anyway, those are the kinds of um, perplexities and conundrums I try to get at through that, through the, that, that story. It really is such a bizarre um, collection of events because um yeah, it just seems so inherently contradictory, self-contradictory. and But it also makes you think that they're in a society in which these are structuring events of life and they have meaning for people, emotional meaning and how they come together in community. And they're just not really willing to give up the trappings, it seems like. Because I, I don't see secularists today having the same need. I mean, we still need community, that kind of thing, still need ritual, but not to that degree, it seems to me. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I sometimes think there there might be a qualitative difference in just how close so many of these mid-19th century, late-19th century secularists still were to either Christianity or Judaism. They were still um, closely connected, like like Thaddeus B. Wakeman. He, he had gone to Princeton. He had he had been marked out for the Presbyterian ministry. He was thinking he, he was going to be a minister. Um, so he'd been deeply influenced um, by the church, but then he becomes this uh, free speech activist lawyer in New York. Um, you know, and but I think there's that that intimacy of connection. Um, Moncure Conway, the, the this other devoted painite, grows up a Methodist in Virginia, is an itinerant for a while before he has a break with his family, ends up at Harvard Divinity School, becoming a Unitarian, then eventually a free thinker. Um, but they're they're still deeply, deeply connected to the church. They know the church, it's, it's in, it's in their bones as it were. And so there is more engagement, more, more, um, play, more play that's, you know, at the level of language, but also really at the level of practice, I think too. Um, I sometimes think that's different. These, these aren't people by and large who are raised as nuns, right? People, nuns in the sense of having no religious affiliation, having no religious identity. These are people who, grew up with a pretty strong sense of religious identity. And um, so there's just more back and forth. Um, I think that's that's the difference. I mean, Felix Adler, who founds the Ethical Culture Societies, deeply formed in, in um, the Jewish tradition, the son of a rabbi, every expectation he's, is he's going to become a rabbi, does graduate work in Germany, comes back, thinks there's just no way I can be a rabbi. Um, but he, you know, instead starts forms... Um, what he sees as a kind of religion of ethical culture. So I, I think it's that kind of, you know, these are still lives that were formed in religious communities, were enmeshed in them. Um, and, you know, some of them, in some cases, the stories of just cleavage, right? It's just a break. But in these other cases, it's really that in-between play. And that's what I think, that's where we get this, right? 
So that it is different, though. And I sometimes think it's that way. I, I also think, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit. The same thing you see with these church experiments with Churches of Humanity. I mean, they're growing up in a world where they just see having something to do on Sunday mornings is really important. So they, they just grow up with a sense this church going habit is is a facet of the social world and secularists need that kind of community too. Yeah, exactly right. And and so in your next chapter, um, you look at what you call life cycle rituals, uh, which include things like baptisms, marriage ceremonies, funerals. So these are the types of things that also need this kind of secular replacement. Uh, even today, um, they're usually performed with one's religious affiliation. So it makes sense that these secularists of the 19th century were keen to develop a non-religious alternative. Um, and it seems like they focused a lot on funerals. So how successful were they? Well, the bigger projects in, in the 19th century, I mean, the grander schemes, the grander liturgical experiments really aren't that successful. And I mean, by those, I mean the, the ones that thought they really would create a secular sacramental system um, on a kind of model of uh, the French philosopher Auguste Comte. I mean, the ones that really wanted, you know, they had a sacramental program for secularism, uh, essentially. I mean, they were going to re-ritualize, you know, everything. It was going to be ornate. And there are some who attempt this. And I look at, you know, Cortland Palmer, an American positivist. David Crowley is another one. Then there's one on the British side, Malcolm Quinn. All of these um, figures spend a lot of time thinking about ritual and really want to um, create a kind of pageantry for secularism. And, you know, they do some. I mean, Malcolm Quinn does okay with his small community in Newcastle in England, and he is just an incredible ritualist. I mean, it's really his memoirs. His absorption, I mean, he's really kind of uh, in high church Anglican for secularism. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite a liturgical sensibility. But that, that's not wildly successful. Those figures all feel very disappointed in their lives that all the time they spend into trying to create a religion of humanity doesn't seem to come to much. Um, David Crowley, um, whose uh, son is the one, Herbert Crowley, involved with the New Republic, um, you know, said that by the end of my father's life, you know, he really didn't think of himself as, as founding a religion anymore. He didn't really think of it or being involved with religion anymore. And then he said that, you know, for the kinds of emotions that he cared about, he told his son, you know, you just need to go to a Catholic church or a, a an Episcopal church, you know, for that kind of high ritualism. So, so those projects, um, I think are filled with more disappointment than, um, success, but the, the, the secular funerals, that one is, I would say somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, that, I, I show that, you know, in the 1850s, when someone wants to have a secular funeral, I mean, where they're trying to create a liturgy apart from the churches, just a ritual form apart from the churches, is really hard to do. 
me, you you almost always get it, it seems like overruled by your family in some kind of way. There just aren't the resources available to say, um, go, I'm only going to do this with free thinkers. I'm appointing a fellow free thinker to lead this. I want, don't want the churches to have anything to do this. It doesn't seem to work very well for them. But by the 1890s, there are enough of these ritual templates out there that there's a pretty good chance a free thinker or a skeptic could prescribe a secular funeral for himself or herself and actually have that work out. Um, and so, you know, again, I mean, this is, this is pretty small scale. I mean, one of the manuals I talk about is this one that is drained up in uh, Hannibal, Missouri by a physician named A.R. Ayers, and he comes up with this universal secular funeral service. And, and he has a, there's a fellowship on the society of moralists where, which he's part of that is promoting this funeral service. And, you know, there's good evidence that that circulates widely, that people have a sense that, Hey, here's this template for a funeral. It's fully secular. This is what, how I want it to be done. And, you know, by the, again, that's he he's circulating that in the 1880s, I would say in the 1880s and 1890s, there, there's significant evidence that free thinkers were able to pull off those kinds of funerals, have these kind of secular funerals. And, and then, you know, into the 20th century, there become more humanistic uh, liter, uh, rituals for this, secular funerals for this, part, that's part of the American Humanist Association, which was founded in the... 1940s. I mean, there, there's more of a, a sense that that's possible and just l- that they can create alternative um, ceremony. And, that, that, and they really kind of measure that as, you know, that's to them is a big measure of whether secularism is successful or not. Am I able to have, am I able to say I want a secular funeral and have a reasonable chance of having that carried out after I, after I die? So um, I would say that's, you know, those, they're, if of the liturgical projects, the secular figures attempt, secular funeral one is where they come, they, they make the most progress, as it were. Hmm. That's interesting, considering it seemed like it got off on really rocky ground at the beginning, because the funeral involved so many family members who um, were not prepared or not interested in that kind of uh, memory for their family member. <laughs> Right, right. Um, oh, I, it is hard. I mean, you get a lot of stories like that too. That, that, that you know, that sense that the Christians are almost certainly going to get a chance to ruin this. Right? They're going to get a prayer in somewhere. They're going to get a hymn in somewhere. The family's going to come in and just refuse to have um, the service performed in the way I want the service performed. So, yeah, you get a lot of those stories. That's that's definitely true. Um, but still, you know. There are more successes by the 1890s um, than there were, you know, a generation or two earlier. You get a sense that that it's pulled out. And that's partly because they've actually circulated these these templates, um, both in in the U.S. um, and um, in Britain. So, but you're right. It's not easy. And there's a lot of controversy around it still. Um, And you, yeah, you see those funerals that kind of go off the rails. That's for sure. Or go up. They, they don't go as planned. You know, you, these people put a lot of time into planning their funerals. I mean, it really matters to them. And then, you know, 
it turns out you've got a brother who's a minister and the minute then the brother wins out over the over your own your plants so yeah it's a but it's sort of again i mean it, you know why 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 look at that well the, you get a sense of like kind of a, a a dirt and dust level what the secular battles are like right this is you know people think well secularism is this kind of um broad system of liberal statecraft and it's about you know particularly about the relationship of religion and the state and how how um how liberalism defines religion in such a way as to, to, to manage it, right? And to kind of protect the state from certain, uh, you know, f- re- forms of religious disruption. And you go, yep, yeah, well, that's true. That's part of what liberalism is doing. But for a lot of these people, the kind of, you know, kind of as a, as a lived, in a lived world, what are they worried about? They're worried about, you know, funerals. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, what is this funeral going to look like? Is there any way I can get someone to carry this out? Um, And so, and they see this as kind of um, really an important testimony about about having lived this life through to the end, this secular free-thinking life through to the end. That, that, That ceremonial is kind of what crowns that. Right. And the lived experiences on the ground are often much more dramatic <laughs> up close. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's part of it. You know, part of what I wanted to do was get a, give some sense of the, of, 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 a, of a kind of lived secularism. So yeah, so in that spirit, let's talk about these um, churches of humanism, because uh, for many atheists and agnostics, both in the 19th century and today, as we've already kind of talked about, one of the most difficult parts of leaving religion behind is lo- losing out on its life structuring aspects, uh, like those life cycle rituals, but, but also that regular fellowship that comes with attending church. So your next chapter looks at how some attempted to feel that gap, or fill that gap, Um So were there many secularists and humanists of the 19th century that were enthusiastic about starting up churches of humanity? And for those who tried, how did those go? Right. Well, it was certainly a debate. It's an in-house debate, um, as it still is uh, among among humanists um, and secularists, you know, like should should uh, humanists organize themselves themselves? in religious ways, right? Should there be a kind of community fellowship dimension of this? Is there a, is there a kind of a religious aspect of this community formation? And then certainly there were plenty of free thinkers who thought that's the last thing we need, right? I mean, we're trying to establish a world without churches. <laughs> you know, churches have had way too much influence. They're too much a part of almost every village, every community. And, you know, and what we want is our sense of, of an ideal future, our sense of a, of a kind of millennial future is one that doesn't have churches in it. So they, they just can't understand why a good number of their colleagues decide, no, we really want to have churches. We need to have churches. The Christians have churches. Um, we need to have them. We need these kinds of institutions. This is our way of um, staking our out our place in the community. And we're going to have these kinds of fellowships. So 
uh, and there are a good number, and some of them are fairly successful. I mean, there, you, you can start off with a sort of uh, post-Christian humanistic Unitarians. Those, those, those congregations tend to do pretty well because they're connected to a, a regular denominational structure often. I mean, it's a, it's a congregational model, and they can organize themselves as these kind of independent liberal churches. And a lot of them, a lot of them are, are, are successful. There, there are a number of them that, um, you know, uh, and they look, you know, if you were a, a, a really serious secularist, like a uh, free thinker, like Robert Ingersoll or George Jacob Polyuk, you might look at those post-Christian humanistic liberal churches and say, Hey, that's a good secular church. I, you know, Ingersoll and, well, you both look at this one church in the 1890s in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is led by this uh, pastor named Carolyn Bartlett. And they say her church if, is, you know, a great secular church. I mean, this is what churches should be. And, and, and Holyoke writes to see if he can become a member from a distance. And Ingersoll endorses it in a lecture tour. So, so some of those churches um, do quite well um, and, you know, are, are very stable over a, a fairly – long period of time. Um, and then you've got a group like uh, Felix Adler's um, Ethical Culture Societies. Those start um, in the 1870s. And by the 1890s, they're uh, four good size ethical culture societies. Um, the big one is in New York, but you have one in in St. Louis and Philadelphia, Chicago, all of them have, you know, strong leaders with um, pretty high profiles in their, in their respective communities. So those are doing well. I mean, they're not huge. I mean, you're, you're talking a thousand to 1500 people involved in ethical culture societies, but still, I mean, you know, we're talking about humanistic standards here. That's a pretty, you know, decent showing. Um, and then you've got independence. You've got um, people who have gone off and organized um, their own congregations of free thinkers, humanist liberals, um, you know, out beyond the edges of Christianity, out beyond um, the edges of Jewish communities. Um, and those are people like this M.M. Mangazarian who has a big congregation in Chicago. He calls it the Independent Religious Society Rationalist. Um, you know, he's he's got a th- thousand and more people coming out to hear him. Um, uh, again, over over a quarter century, really. I mean, he has a, a flourishing church. Um and then, uh, you know, there are others like Katie Kame Smith is an interesting free thinker in Oregon. She, her, her vision, secularism, should spread itself through organizing churches. And she starts one in, in Portland called the First Secular Church of Portland and does reasonably well with it. For a few years, she, she dies off on a, on a lecture tour at, a, at a, a relatively young age. So, you know, we don't have any way of knowing what the staying power of, of her church would have been otherwise, but, um, you know, it's another decently successful experiment, but then some of them aren't very successful at all. There's this very curmudgeonly farmer in Kansas, little town, town in Kansas, great Bend, Kansas, 
W.H. Kerr, who starts a Church of Humanity about 1905. And he's just, you know, he draws the line so crisply and narrowly that he, you know, you have to be an atheist. You can't be deistic. You can't be agnostic. You can only, you know, have this, you have an atheist kind of catechism you have to subscribe to. He, you know, his church is not big. He has grand plans for it. He thinks he's going to found an atheist, you know, college in this little town in Kansas, buys a hotel, publishes tracks, does all of this for a couple of decades. But, you know, it, that's tiny. And he looks, he just looks kind of like a crank, really. So, you know, hard, hard. So there are people like that, too, people who think this is a fine idea, but they don't really build very robust communities. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I mean, right. So, you know, I would say the, the picture as a whole, and this is the picture I try to paint, is there are a lot of these experiments. They're quite distinctive. You know, don't, we shouldn't think of secularism as this kind of hegemonic, all-consuming part of culture. We should look at these experiments and see the kind of curious sectarian qualities, the kind of minority status of these movements within this within the wider religious world and landscape. And so and then once you get down and look at these figures and their movements and their communities, I think it, you, you get a better feel for that. I mean that the, the painites or the ethical culture groups, I mean these some take them as a symptom of of kind of uh, across the board cultural definition on secular terms or something. Let's look at them for the the small scale religious communities they are and were. So as we move into the 20th century, uh, your research shows that these efforts to create humanist churches and so forth continued, but then into the 20th century, we see an increase in the political and legal implications of these efforts, and then also a sharp rise in the backlash from the Christian community. Is that about right? Yeah, uh, right. That is right. I um, There is, in, in to, you know, right through the first half of the 20th century, there's quite a bit of um, humanist organizing. Um, you know, arguably... The religious humanists of the 1920s and 30s are more successful than their forebears a generation or two earlier. I mean, in that, in religious humanism, is organizing a good number of communities, small again, small humanist churches, but um, and humanist fellowships, but a good good number of them again strongly tied to the Unitarians, and um, so yeah, that continues that 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 pattern from the 19th century. But um, uh, yeah, they 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 flourish. I mean, there's quite a literature of religious humanism in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, it's it's really um, really strong. Um, so, uh, but what does happen then is the, the the political context changes around them. As I mentioned earlier, they. Um, you know, they do pretty well winning cases, um, you know, around tax exemption, eventually the conscientious objection cases, where there is a, a, relig- a recognition of the religious dimensions of their ethical humanism. That gets recognized. 
the po- the politics that changes this is that that the religious right really does then start mobilizing against this catch-all phantom of secular humanism. And this throws these small humanist organizations on, on the defensive. It mystifies them, but you know, they have none of the resources of these religious right organizations who are now, you know, denouncing with all you know, fire and brimstone, secular humanism. And this just becomes this, you know, the degree of moral panic around secular humanism by the late 1970s and 1980s is really high. So that, yeah, that does change. That changes things, um, you know, where you really get a sense that, um, I mean, it puts a lot of pressure on the the religious humanists to redefine themselves in secular terms, Um you know, like, no, we have nothing to do with religion. And, you know, even though, you know, we were making this case on the tax exemption and conscientious objection cases, there's no way that our program is religious in the sense that anything that's going on in the public schools is, is part of our religion, right? So the notes, it, you know, that they really want to put the emphasis on this as a, as a, as a secular program. So that context um, really does, yeah, really affects this, this, um, this religious line of argument, um, it really changes the way that debate looks, both um, from the outside, in that, um, but also within within these circles, it just gets harder and harder for the religious humanists to defend themselves against their fellow secularists who say, you know, want to say, no, we're entirely secular. There's nothing religious about this. Right. And you have a really interesting statement in your epilogue. Uh, You write, the rise of secular humanism as a political phantasm, as church-state affliction, as purist moniker, did a certain violence to the religious history of secularism. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Tell us what you mean by that. Right. Yeah, that that is part of what I'm talking about. The um, So... So secular humanism has this political phantasm where everywhere religious conservatives look, they see the influence of, of secular humanism so, or, or, or the religion of humanism or the religion of secularism. I mean, they have these w- ways of talking about this. So um, whether it's, you know, the removal of prayer and Bible reading from the public schools, whether it's sex edu- education programs, whether it's um, feminism whether it's um, abortion rights, whether, um, you know, it's the way history is told in textbooks. Um, the, uh, there is just a sense secular humanism becomes responsible for it all. This is this dangerous cabal um, with incredible influence um, out there in, in, in the society, especially in anything having to do with public schools. So this, this is this, you know, it, it becomes a really consuming phantasm on the right. I mean, it enough to really mobilize big voting blocks in the 1980 election, and again in 1984, in the 1984 presidential election, Walter Mondale is presented as this dangerous humanist because his brother Lester Mondale is actually a humanist. So Walter Mondale becomes, you know, guilty by association with his, uh, his brother Lester. So, so it has that, it has this political force. Um, and, um, 
you know, one of, of great, uh, you know, has this real capacity, much like critical race theory does now, has an ability to concentrate a lot of moral panic on the right. So that's in that sense, a church state affliction in the sense that seemingly, you know, so many different things could be, you know, declared as being part of the secular humanist religion, the religion of secularism or the religion of humanism, um, that any time this school seemed to move in any one direction or another, um, you know, say evolutionism, um, creationism, uh, you know, the claims about in those kinds of debates, sex education, um, certainly textbooks, uh, all of these things that somehow, you know, the religion of humanism was at play and therefore, you know, had leverage in these church state debates because on this principle of neutrality, you couldn't be favoring, just like if you can use that argument that you can't favor Protestantism with these devotional habits around Bible reading and prayer, you can't favor secular humanism as a religion either. So there's all kinds of things that rule that. So it becomes this just one case after another where secular humanism gets invoked. So that's why it's a church state affliction. And then a purist moniker is, is that as this just becomes so omnipresent in the political atmosphere and in the legal atmosphere, more and more secularists, um, like Paul Kurtz with his Council on Secular Humanism, start really wanting to read the religious humanists out of the history, saying secular humanism is an entirely secular movement. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, it has nothing to do with religion. Um, and so, so, so that changes it because now it's just kind of like it, it becomes this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, we are secular humanists, but secular humanists has nothing to do with religion. So it becomes this purifying move on the inside secularist ranks. Um, and the, so the violence that does to the history is, is that all those things are going on. And that means those, those, all of those things are kind of exerting pressure to kind of retell the, the history of secularism with, um, with these religious dimensions left out of it. So that's going to have a potentially, uh, you know, an obscuring effect on on um, these projects that really existed in the middle or were, were engaged in kind of um, hybrid projects um, in the space between, um, you know, atheism and theism. Um, rendering all those stories suspect and less likely to be told. So the A.D. Fopel story about his Church of Humanity in, you know, Oakland, California, or, uh, you know, Lester Mondale and his, you know, his religious humanists, or Sherwin Wine's Society for Humanistic Judaism, or this hum humanist William Young who starts a small society for evangelical agnostics. All of, all of, um, these kinds of projects, these hybrid projects, the ones that kind of, they come potentially to be seen, um, you know, with when secular humanism is kind of everywhere, um, they can kind of fall out of view. Um, and, you know, you can, because there's a kind of clarifying demand that secular humanism creates a pressure. Um, so that's 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 what I had in mind with thinking with that. Um, 
it, especially the pressure that's being exerted from within secularist ranks to get rid of these religious, you know, these religious confusions and mixings, right? Because that's where you're going like, no, we have nothing to do with religion. Absolutely nothing. And that gives that, that's a long running debate in secularist ranks. There were plenty of people in the 19th century who felt that way. But be, because of the way the secular humanism, uh, you know, debate takes off in the 19th, it gives that group more leverage. And it really, I, you know, the religious humanists are, are um, yeah, I, you know, it makes it very awkward for them. And I think it's still awkward for them. I mean, they're still kind of like trying to, uh, you know, figure out that relationship. They're under a lot more pressure to um, to uh, deny any religiousness to their humanism. Well, that brings me to my next question, and that's about what do you think is the state of organized secularism today in the 21st century? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of – there are a lot of – uh, of similarities. I mean, I do think that a, a lot of these debates that we see coming out of the 19th century, continuing in the 20th century, you know, are, are alive and well in the 21st century. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there's still a lot of uh, interest, um, you know, say, uh, you know, Greg Epstein and the Harvard Humanist Chaplaincy, I mean, is, is an example of of, um, you know, that in-betweenness of humanists who want to organize, they're not quite sure that they organized in religious ways or not. Um, they're d- deeply connected to the, to the legacies of this kind of religious humanism. Um, and so, so you kind of see that, but then you have others who, you know, were saying like, we don't want to have anything to do with this kind of organized, these kind of organized communities. There's nothing congregational about secularism, right? So, so there, there are those, um, those debates are still there. Um, you know, is there anything, should there be anything congregational about secularism, about free thought? Um, you know, there's still, there's still debate about Payne's legacy. It's not, it's not the same. It doesn't have that um, quite the same hero worship quality it had in the in the 19th century. No one, um, well, almost no one, you know, at this point is worried about Payne's relics. I mean, there's still a small Payne museum in uh, New Rochelle, and they have some of these things on display. And but but it's not it's not the same investment. Um, but I think that question about you know, the questions about the relationship between secularism and religious materiality, we could probably look for those questions uh, elsewhere. Um, and, you know, the, certainly the life cycle rituals, you know, that debate continues. I mean, that's a, um, you know, in humanist communities, that's that's an issue. I mean, what the, the humanist celebrants, um, you know, how are these, how are these rituals um, going to be organized? Do we have people who have been especially trained to do them, um, you know, so those, 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 uh, issues are definitely, you know, there and you can, you can see the legacies from the earlier periods, um, on that for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think, I think if someone were inside this organized secularist movement today and they saw this, they would see lots of places of similarity. A lot of these debates would seem eerily familiar. 
right. Well, Lee, I've taken up a lot of your time and I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yeah, I would like to be able to tell you what I'm currently working <laughs> on. I, uh, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, so many of the archives and libraries were closed and it was just very hard to do the kind of work I tend to do as a historian. Um, you know, even, even towards the close of this project, I mean, I was, I felt a little hamstrung. I mean, you couldn't get back to certain archives. You couldn't, you know, you, you had, you had archives where people weren't even going in. Right. I mean, the, the new Rochelle one, I mean, I wasn't sure I would get photographs because, you know, people weren't going to work. People weren't going in. There wasn't, you know, you weren't sure anybody was going to go into the library and get you a photo, you know, and that was all understandable. So all of that is to say that um, I feel like I, I'm a little less sure. I'm still interested, you know, I still am interested in these uh, secular, atheistic, humanistic histories. I feel like that's kind of my archive now. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I might keep going on that, but. I can't, I can't say for sure. And, uh, you know, we'll see, but I, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you exactly what I'm working on because it's not, it's not entirely clear to me right now. Oh, well, that's fair. I mean, for, for some of us, COVID sort of, uh, created a space for a little bit of a mental health break maybe. So <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's what it is. But, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know. I've, I got, I've got some, uh, I've always I've always been interested in um, you know besides the uh, the atheism, secularism, humanism stuff, the kind of religious creativity um, um, in these kind of post-Christian settings. I mean, the thing the you know that the, what we would call or some people would call the spiritual but not religious side of the spectrum, which is sort of the cousins often of these of, of these kind of more. Um, secular religious folk and so i you know i i play around with that with materials there and different figures and movements and i have a i have some i have interest in um the way secularist people will use the spiritual label like whether they can have a secular spirituality i find a lot of the work going on around like notions of a secular buddhism fascinating i mean i see this as a kind of replay of this of the, of the kind of dance between the religious and the secular that is so evident in so much of the material I've looked at, but just watching how people will adapt mindfulness practices, how they'll explain whether it's spiritual or not, what, what they get, you know, that, 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 that intrigues me. So I've got, I've got a, I've got a file on that material and, you know, I see there's a lot of resonance in these, in these, you know, religious humanists who also made the same kinds of moves. They, you know, say they're, they're humanistic through and through the only, you know, their entire emphasis is on this world and, and, and the, the immediacies of this life and that they would turn around and say, you know, they were deeply concerned about the spiritual life. And then they would, you know, so it was, it was, it's that play. Like, how do you, how do you render certain religious practices secular? What do you, what is it, how is it okay if they're spiritual? So, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I've got a file on that. I can't promise you I will write that up though. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a really interesting field I've recently discovered as well. This concept of um, uh, post secularisms, as in you know, not a reintroduction of deism or anything like that, but reenchantment is a term that I've come across where pe- people seem to have this appetite for. I don't want to call it magic necessarily, but some kind of level of feeling of enchantment or something. And people find a way to bring that back into their lives uh, in other ways, which is why I found your chapter on, uh, well, just the whole idea of creating relics, uh, which mostly out of a Protestant society anyways, whereas relics are, you know, usually and I might be wrong about this because this is not my area of expertise, but usually that's a Catholic thing, right? And you have these people emerging from a Protestant background um, who are atheists or, or agnostic and then being drawn to create relics out of uh, somebody's remains. Just, I encourage the readers to check it out because you did get pictures, or the listeners, I should say, you did get pictures. So you've got pictures of this this purported portion of a brain this leftover hair and it's just odd <laughs> yeah right right i mean in some ways that's what i yeah that's what you sort of want to do is you bring the reader into like here's the oddity now you know like and i i don't and there's just sig- significant levels of confusion all the way through and you and i was kind of trying to pick through those layers right um and yeah so odd is good. I mean, I do. I think you just kind of like approach it and there's just something at the final, at the end of the day that um, its oddity can't be resolved, right? There's an ambiguity that is just shot through it with paradox and ambiguity. So, yeah. And I, so I am drawn to those, those kinds of confusions and I see the same kinds of confusions when, with, you know, structure, these conversations about, meditation and mindfulness and secular Buddhism and humanistic Buddhism. And, and so, you know, we'll see, but it is, uh, yeah. Well, I hope you do write a book. I hope you do write a book about it. I'd certainly be interested in reading it and it would be great to have you back to talk about it. So (laughs) I appreciate that. We'll see if I can, I can get on track on that. (laughs) (laughs) No rush, no pressure. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again so much for coming on. Have a great rest of your afternoon, Lee. Okay. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. Lee Eric Schmidt about his new book, The Church of St. Thomas Paine, A Religious History of American Secularism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review in your podcast player, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Do you belong to a secular church? Have you participated in a secular wedding or funeral? Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in secularism.